Today's show is all about medical education. By way of introduction, I have been thinking about medical education ever since the pandemic forced us into isolation. I maintain that those with passion and skill for teaching will innovate new ways to make our shared reality one conducive to learning, but there have been and will be bumps along the way. In today's show, I speak to two guests, both from the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University. First up is Dr. Alan Tunkel, the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education. We walk through the plan for the fall for medical students at various stages of training, what transitioning to a safer model of learning has been like, and also an interesting conversation about standardized testing and the interesting role that he played in some recent seismic changes in this area. Then we hear from Lee Kinney, a rising second-year medical student who offers a realistic look into the abrupt transition to remote learning, what she thinks the fall will bring, and what about medical school has been surprising so far. I find that this episode is timely for students and educators as a new academic year gets underway. I look forward to new, innovative, and safe ways to learn. I only hope that I can channel my love for pathology and histology across the Zoom feed. I hope that you all enjoy the show. Here it is. Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Alan Tunkel. Dr. Tunkel is the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education and a Professor of Medical Science and of Medicine at Brown University, the Warren Alpert Medical School. He completed his MD and PhD at College of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, his residency in internal medicine at the Hospital of the Medical College of Pennsylvania, and his fellowship in infectious diseases at the University of Virginia Health Science Center. He is widely published in the areas of infectious disease and medical education, has written textbooks, been on the editorial boards of journals, and received many, many teaching awards. Dr. Tunkel, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Uh, Doing well. How are you? I have to say I'm doing very well. Thank you. Um, So could you tell us about yourself, aside from the CV type recitations that I made above and how you came to be working where you are now? Well, I think it's been a little bit of a long story. Uh, I have, as you mentioned, both an MD and a PhD, and I trained in my fellowship at the University of Virginia. Uh, As I really neared the end of my training, I decided I was going to be the Renaissance person, do a little bit of everything, research, clinical care, education. But my life evolved, and I would say I became much more interested in medical education. That led to a lot of my career being dedicated to the education of medical students, residents, and uh, physicians and other physicians in training. So it's really been a great run, and it sort of culminated with uh, my latest job as Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education at the Warren Alpert Medical School. And it's really given me an outstanding opportunity to be involved in many wonderful opportunities to influence medical education throughout the United States. So I'm interested in that. You said you wanted to be a Renaissance man, which I think many early in their careers do. Um, was there a particular uh, situation or event that made you shift focus to medical education? Was it gradual or how did that work? I I think it probably was um, somewhat gradual or somewhat fast. Uh, Maybe that's (laughs) a little bit of a non-answer, but... Yeah, I'm I'm eager to hear this, yeah. (laughs) Well, when I took my first job, I was recruited to the Medical College of Pennsylvania. And uh, I got some funding. I set up my research lab. And my idea was I was going to continue much of the basic science research that I had done at the University of Virginia. But then circumstances change. 
And what happened was that the chair of my department asked me to take on a role and to help him run the internal medicine residency program. Mm -hmm. It was really a huge administrative role. And because of that change, I began to recognize that I just couldn't do everything in in a high level way. And I thought the best thing would be to for me to refocus what I thought was going to be most important in my career. Mm-hmm. And I was seeing a lot of patients and doing a lot of education. And I would say that was giving me a little bit more satisfaction at that time. Understandable. Yeah. I mean, internal medicine, internal re- medicine residencies are probably a big job that's a lot of people. So I can understand that that would be a lot of work. Um, yeah, it's based a little bit on advice I often give yeah. to students and residents. Uh-huh. Well, maybe I graduated from fellowship with the idea that I had my whole life mapped out. I think uh-huh. it's probably better not to plan uh, your life out too much into the future because not yeah. only things will things happen in your professional life, but will happen in your personal life that will influence the direction you're going to take. Yeah, I think someone told me one time that people would always ask her, well, what are you going to do next? And she said, I learned after a while that opportunities always present themselves if I'm just open to them. So I've stopped worrying about it. And I took that um, advice to heart and it's served me well. I mean, there's always opportunities. Sometimes you do have to do a little digging, but um, that's good life advice. Um, yeah, so you I and agree. I. Good advice. Yeah. Yeah. So you and I have been trying to match up for quite a while. Um, It seems a lot has happened since COVID-19 hit the national stage and hit you and I hit our region of the country particularly hard. On March 30th, Brown moved instruction to remote learning to protect the students and the faculty. Can you tell me what that time was like for you and the medical educators? Um, Do you feel that your background in infectious diseases made the early days of this experience different for you, maybe as compared to some of your other colleagues? Um, I mostly, I just like, did you know what we were in for? Could you tell how bad this was going to be? Well, I think that, I think I was worried <clears throat> in terms of what was going to be happening. And, and I think some of that worry actually began uh, much before then. Uh, toward the end of January of uh, 2020, uh, you may be aware that Brown has a number of international exchange programs. So we um, send students to many countries throughout the world. And we had a group of medical students that were, were going to be headed to Taiwan to do uh, some international rotations, as well as going to um, Japan and Korea as well. And this was very, very early during the pandemic, uh, really at a time we were not seeing cases in the United States, but there were a number of cases, obviously, in China and other countries of the Far East. Mm-hmm. And although there were not restrictions at that time, many of us, certainly in the infectious diseases community, were very concerned about what might happen uh, with coronavirus in the Far East. And we wound up canceling all of our um, uh, the rotations for all of our students in the Far East at that time. We even had students who were physically in Japan at the time and we arranged for them to be transported back to the United States. Hmm. And there were not a lot of cases, but I think we were very concerned about the potential of what might happen. Mm-hmm. And then as uh, things began to evolve, obviously many more cases in the Far East and cases began to occur in other areas, uh, even in uh, Western Europe, where countries were hit hard. So over the ensuing months, We also wound up canceling the international exchange rotations for our students who are going to be going to places like Germany, Italy, and France. Mm 
Okay. And I think that was also the right thing to do because it was unpredictable in terms of what was going to be happening in those countries. And again, at the time, we had two students in Italy that we needed to arrange to come back to the United States. We also had concerns about uh, even gatherings that were going to happen at the medical school. Mm-hmm. You may, you're aware that um, in the third week of March every year is when the medical students find out where they matched for their residency training programs. Right. And we usually have a huge celebration at the medical school uh, called Match Day, where the students will be on the campus. They'll be confined in a large building. Many of their family, friends, significant others will be there. And they will open their envelopes uh, you know, with screams of joy about where they're going to wind up. And we made the decision to cancel Match Day and to hold a virtual ceremony for this particular year, just given concerns about having large groups of people together in the same building. Right. And it was also around that time that we received guidance from the Association of American Medical Colleges um, to pull all of our students out of rotations, uh, clinical rotations. So this pertained to all of our third and fourth year students. And we followed that guidance during the month of March. And again, I, I would say those recommendations were based on not having a clear picture at that time about how extensive things were going to be. Uh, concern for the health and safety of students who would be doing clinical rotations, particularly around the fact uh, and the concerns that there might not be adequate personal protective equipment for students who would be rotating at hospitals. Right. So right, we to pulled, conserve it for the the uh, more senior level. That's correct. Right. And that was appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had to ensure that the uh, the healthcare providers who were really providing the highest level one-on-one care to patients were adequately protected. And at that time, uh, the health systems just did not have enough resources uh, that could be provided to students as well. So we eliminated Mm -hmm. that and we made the decision um, to also uh, for our uh, first and second year medical students to uh, do the rest of their education uh, for that year to have it to be done virtually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine planning for the new school year has been underway since I'm sure the, I mean, I'm sure it takes months and almost a year to start planning for the fall, but now that things have changed, it almost seems like, um, the state of Rhode Island, you know, from that level to, to, you know, my children's schools here, um, in, in Rhode Island, it seems like they have multiple different plans sort of depending mm-hmm. on how things are going. So, um, can you give me an idea where you are right now, both for medical students who are more in the classroom in the first and second years, and then those in the third and fourth year, how that's looking? Uh, sure. And, and I would say you're right. You know, the planning for this sometimes can take an inordinate period of time. So, you know, we like to say in these days, everything has to go um, via COVID speed and things have to Does happen. Does that mean fast or slow? That means fast. <laughs> okay. I was going to say <laughs> fast, but from your house. Yeah. That's what COVID speed means. That's right. I think that's, yeah. that's absolutely true. Yeah. So it's really been a staged approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the, the first stage began. So when we decided to remove students from their clinical rotations, our year three medical students who were doing their clerkships had actually not completed their clerkships yet. Mm-hmm. And we worked uh, very closely with our healthcare systems 
we ensured appropriate policies and procedures were in place and there was appropriate personal protective equipment. So we returned our year three students to clinical rotations on May 26th. Mm-hmm. So they all had to do an additional two weeks to be able to complete those clerkships. And then in addition, uh, for our rising third-year students, uh, they uh, went back into the clinical environment on uh, June 22nd. So they are doing their clerkships now. Mm -hmm. So really our clinical students during the clerkships and in the post-clerkship period are really back to doing everything that they would have done in the hospital environment and are also in outpatient settings working with uh, clinicians uh, in the community where they're being exposed to caring for patients, uh, both in person as well as learning a lot about telehealth, depending upon the nature of that individual practice. Mm -hmm. And I would say that uh, for the most part, this has really been going extraordinarily well. (coughs) And our students are engaged in that process. Given the fact that the year three clerkships had to begin a little later, this year, we actually shortened the duration of the individual clerkships, but we uh, created a curricular process that we are very confident that students will still meet the learning objectives and the curricular objectives to ensure that they get the appropriate training during these clinical experiences. <coughs> yeah, I've, I've heard some say um, that this period of medical training, this period of residency, or if you're a medical student... Um, <coughs> will always have an asterisk by it. You know, it'll always be, oh, that took place during the time of COVID. I'm not insinuating that that's going to mean it's inferior training, but I do think that this period of time will always be remembered as different and apart. But it's interesting that your students are learning about telehealth. I didn't learn anything about that in medical school. I was in medical school around 2004. It wasn't that long ago, but it really wasn't a thing. So maybe this will sort of in the mixed blessing category end up giving them some advantage. where it'll shift learning that way. I feel like all the digital things that were happening were sort of um, accelerated by the COVID crisis. So um, that's interesting. I do have one follow-up question though. What are you doing um, in terms of inclusivity for students who have um, underlying health conditions or something that would preclude them from rotating in the hospital when this is a risk? Are there backup digital options for those people? Because you would imagine something for like surgery, you would have to go into the hospital to learn that, right? Yeah, I think it's really true for all of the individual clerkships. Uh, you mm-hmm. have to really have those patient exposures moving ahead. Right. And it's really been very clear from our accrediting body, the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, that it's not acceptable from their point of view for all of the, the totality of the education for their, our medical students to be virtual. Right. We really think by ensuring that we have appropriate personal protective equipment, mm-hmm. that for certain students, we may need to think about how we may need to individualize that approach. Mm-hmm. We've been working very closely with university health services Uh, regarding uh, what may need to be done for individual students. But I Mm -hmm. I think we have good processes in place. Mm -hmm. I think the truth is that COVID is here here, and it's going to be here for the future. And maybe we will have a vaccine that will be very effective in decreasing the prevalence of um, the coronavirus in our community. But there's always going to, I think it's going to be present. And there's going to be things that Uh, medical students and residents and practicing physicians are going to deal with and taking appropriate precautions 
is really going to be an important part of their training. I agree. I think it's interesting to watch um, everyone sort of shift their focus from the early days of PPE for the providers for now uh, universal masking. And I think as we go forward and that becomes more widely accepted, I think the risk for even people with underlying health conditions will decrease. But it, I think we're kind of in that transition phase right now. So at least in the hospital, it's interesting um, to, to I think I think we are, Natalie. I think we're in a different yeah. place than we were last March. Because mm-hmm. I think we've learned a lot. Obviously, Rhode Island is one of those states where the uh, the cases, numbers of cases are going down. So we, I Knock think, are wood, in, right? we're Knock in great position. Yeah. Um, but I think we have to be continue to be very, very vigilant and mm-hmm. monitor the situation carefully. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that it will stay this low for the rest of the year. Um, I really hope it does. But with the spikes we're seeing in the southern part of the United States, the western part of the United States, um, it's not as if Rhode Island has borders that, you know, you can't cross if you just get in a car and drive. So I really hope that people, you know, maintain vigilance, even though we are one of the lucky states, like you said, with um, low prevalence and incidence, really. Um, So I I would uh, also say that actually, based on the clerkships, I talked about shortening their duration. It's kind of interesting. It was something we had been talking about for the last year uh, to do Mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. And I would say probably the pandemic, uh, we're doing it a little sooner than we expected, but it created an opportunity for us to also look at other unique models of medical education. So, so for example, I mean, I mentioned surgery, but I'm, I'm guessing, you know, like the ones you think of as sort of core clerkships, medicine, surgery, pediatrics, those are actually decreasing in length. And what are you sort of filling up the, the other part with? Is it something virtual, like a different elective or? It's not that it's virtual, but we're, mm-hmm. we're focusing the clinical experiences a little more intensely. Mm-hmm. And we've actually added some additional elective experiences that students can take in the third year mm-hmm. that may allow them to explore other disciplines uh, in fields like that pathology, they may want to enter, right? right? Pathology, yeah. right outside of the uh, <laughs> yeah. outside of the usual core clerkships, All and then and then for the first and second years, because our first year and second year students will be returning mm-hmm. in the first week of August. And what we've put together in our medical school building is uh, we have a very detailed plan in place uh, to ensure physical distancing of students, uh, cleaning of areas. I mean, we we have these large lecture halls that will hold 150 students, but clearly we cannot have that many students in the lecture hall. So that will be reduced to about 40 students. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a lot of opportunities for ongoing uh, distance learning in a large classroom. <clears throat> but our feeling is that our students also have to have a significant in-person component. So the expectation is, <clears throat> excuse me, that they will return to Providence and they will still have small group sessions well, we'll be working with preceptors, that we will have an intensive doctoring curriculum. Mm-hmm. Well, they will be able to interact with standardized patients, again, with uh, appropriate personal protective equipment, and they will still work with mentors in the community as part of our doctoring uh, program. Oh, that's good. That's good. Remote learning and working were already on the rise before it became acutely necessary last spring to do so. I can only imagine what distance learning, say, would have looked like if we had had this pandemic 50 years ago. But I'm old enough to remember finding out about snow days when I was a kid through a system of phone trees where one person called one person, the next person called another person. Um, It seems like 
what would have happened, say, 30 years ago, even during this time, would not have risen to the occasion of learning how to become a physician. But from my admittedly limited experience teaching at Brown's Medical School, it seems that this generation is very tech savvy and accustomed to learning through digital formats. How drastic do you think the change has been? I know that the curriculum went entirely digital in the spring, but it sounds like the, the format you're mentioning for the fall my knowledge of what the medical students at Brown do is a lot of them choose to attend those lectures remotely. So how drastic do you think that change is going to be for the students? Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's going to be that drastic in terms of the of the large lectures, because you're right. I think what the, the truth is that when medical students first arrive and they start medical school as year one students, many of them come to lectures even the large lectures. But as the years go on, especially into year two, the attendance at lectures is much and much less. We record all the lectures using a system called Panopto. So the students can view the lectures later. Mm -hmm. They can slow them down, speed it up, uh, go back, review additional materials to be sure that they understand the important principles. And there definitely are students who learn much better with that format and feel much more comfortable. So I, I think it really needs to be based on the learning style for each individual student. Mm-hmm. We also have students who get more out of coming to lecture. Mm-hmm. So the way that we're going to work it, for example, for these 40 or so seats that are going to be available in the large auditoriums, is that there'll be opportunities for students to sign up to indicate their interest in being physically present for these individual lectures. Mm-hmm. But, but I would agree. I, I would say many of the students... Uh, do not come to lecture these days. That that even applies to my lectures, even though I'm the senior associate dean for medical education. <laughs> nothing personal, yeah. Nothing personal, but yeah. it's just yeah. the way that they learn much better. But but that said, we really think the small group sessions are important, and and that's really the environment where working with a preceptor, you know, uh, the the preceptor can use the Socratic method, can facilitate discussions really get a good handle on what the student knows, a good opportunity to challenge the students to think. And those types of experiences in small groups, I think, are critically important, as are the patient experiences where they'll uh, be involved in history taking and doing important aspects of the physical examination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um one impact on students has been of, of the COVID crisis has been the postponement of crucial exams that they have to take at certain <clears throat> key points in their training process. And recently, Brown became a leader in making this test um, available locally. I'm, I'm thinking of step one, but I think there are other parts of the exam that are also impacted. Can you talk about this process? Sure. Um, so a number of things. You know, when we went to all remote learning for our first and second year students, we, we actually, uh, for our first year students, excuse me, uh, we actually purchased a program that allowed the students to take their normal first year examinations at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a, um, a, a, um, a program or a, um, I'm trying to think of a name, a, um, an application that allows for remote proctoring of examinations. And I would say that wound up working very, very well. Mm -hmm. The more difficult thing had to do with the uh, United States medical licensing exams, USMLE, Mm -hmm. uh, both step one and step two clinical knowledge. The the issue is our our second year students finished their um, curriculum in the middle of February 
of that second year. And then they, we give them about eight or nine weeks off to study to take USMLE step one. So most of them are ready to take that examination the, the end of uh, March and the beginning of April. <clears throat> but what began happening is that while the uh, National Board of Medical Examiners writes the examination, the administration of the exam happens at testing sites uh, run by Prometric throughout the United States. I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and given the, um, the nature of Prometric and, and the nature of the COVID-19 pandemic, many of the Prometric centers began to close. Mm-hmm. And students would be registered to take the examination and find out, you know, sometimes hours to a few days before that their exam was canceled because the site wound up closing or there were not appropriate numbers of seats at the site where the students could take the examination. And and this really became a national issue because uh, this was affecting medical students across the country and they weren't able to take the exam. As you can imagine, they've just spent eight or nine weeks doing nothing but studying and then not having the ability to take that examination really impacted the well-being of the students and, uh, um, and how they were able to move forward. Mm-hmm. So we began having conversations with the leadership of the National Board of Medical Examiners. You know, initially, there was the thought that they would be able to, that Prometric centers would be opening, that there would be processes that could be put into place. But I think the, the National Board of Medical Examiners eventually recognized that this was not going to work. And uh, the uh, vice president of that organization actually reached out to me in early May, uh, actually Friday evening, I think it was May 1st, uh, to talk about the idea of a number of centers, uh, medical school centers from out from throughout the United States become a test site where these exams could be administered. Mm -hmm. And we we worked over that weekend to... um, put forth the principle that we felt the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University should be one of those sites for a number of reasons. And we worked with the Department of Health, as well as with the leadership of Brown University to become a regional testing center whereby students at medical schools in New England could travel to Brown and take the USMLE licensing exams, both step one and step two clinical knowledge. Mm-hmm. It was really an, a very, very extensive process because we had to work with Prometric for them to uh, move their server, uh, all of the IT equipment. We had to we created individual rooms where up to twenty examinees would be able to take the examination. We opened up our site uh, to be available seven days a week. We not only um, had opportunities for students from the Warren Alpert Medical School to take the exam, but it was opened up to students from Harvard Medical School, Tufts, Boston University, University of Massachusetts, University of Connecticut, and the Osteopathic School in Maine. So we uh, did testing. Uh, We were the first center throughout the United States that opened. We did testing that began on May 27th. And it lasted until uh, June 28th. And we wound up testing, I would say, over 400 medical students um, regionally to be able to take this examination. 
Mm-hmm. And I have to take my hats off actually to uh, our associate dean for medical education and uh, student affairs who really did an uh, incredible job organizing this process with all of the medical schools and our team in the Office of Medical Education, Student Affairs, and um, and many other uh, people in uh, information technology facilities and the administration of the medical school who work together often day and night in uh, providing this opportunity for our students. I can tell you it was incredibly well received, not just from our students, but all of the students from the regional New England schools who continue to um, compliment us on the experience of coming to Brown to take these examinations. Mm -hmm. And is that something that will be just offered because of COVID, or do you think going forward you'll continue doing that? Yeah, we decided to end the program on June 28th, really mm-hmm. because it it was an, it took an incredible amount of staff time to do this in the right way. Right. And we mm-hmm. did it in the right way. Right. But I, I think for us, you know, in July, um, there are no students in the building right now. And mm-hmm. uh, many of our staff will be taking vacations as we prepare for the return of students in early August. Mm-hmm. And basically, we did not have the bandwidth to be able to do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's probably very labor intensive, and I, I imagine the regulations are are many. So yeah, no, I, I would say that's true. I mean, we needed to have staff in the building for ten to eleven hours each day to be able to mm-hmm. do this. Yeah, the other thing that the USMLE program is doing is they're they're going to do um, uh days for certain medical schools moving forward to offer either step one or step two across the country. Mm-hmm. So maybe that they will allow some remote proctoring and they're, they're looking at other things moving ahead. Um, you know, during the pandemic, hopefully they'll be able to test many more students across the country. Right. The um, American Board of Pathology is actually, I think, letting re-licensing exams happen remotely. Um, and it's my understanding that remote proctoring involves turning your camera on on your computer so they can see you. Is right. that what you're using for the, you said your first year medical students were taking tests at home. Is that something where you can see what they're doing or are you actually monitoring which websites they're going to? Or do no, you, you have can, that you granular? Can, you can actually see what they're doing. Okay. In fact, even but, when we did the USMLE exams here at Brown, we, we mm-hmm. actually had every student in an individual room. So we not only had proctors that were walking around, but um, the students were videotaped while they were taking the examination. So they were right. monitored very, very carefully. But if a, if a student takes an exam at home, is there a way to prevent them from just going onto a website and looking up the answer? Um, yes, there is. I, I have okay. to admit, I can't tell you how the software exactly works, but those kinds of things are able to be monitored. I I assumed so. I mean, it seems obvious, but I assumed so. (laughs) Who knows? Um, So speaking of the USMLE, they recently changed scoring policies in so so much as I know from um, a number score, which I vaguely remember being on a sliding scale that even at the time didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It wasn't like out of 100% from what I remember. Um, And now it's pass-fail. So now I find this to be interesting I, um, I'm interested to see what the impact is going forward on medical education, specifically in the area where I have some experience with this, which is interviewing candidates for residency. How do you see this change and what impact do you think it will have 
on not only the medical students at the time, but going forward in their life and how it affects their application process. Sure. Uh, Do you mind sort of a long story for this answer as well? That's why we're here. This is an open format. (laughs) Yeah. Because uh, we at uh, Brown University, I I would say that many of us were also instrumental in this exam, USMLE Step 1, becoming Mm pass-fail. And I I think there is sort of a a very significant story behind this as well. Um, uh, The medical school at Brown University, we we are part of a uh, consortium through the American Medical Association. About seven years ago, the AMA put a call out to medical schools across the country to submit proposals to talk to indicate what they're doing that's very unique and innovative around medical education. And the um, AMA was getting into the undergraduate medical education business, so to speak, where they wanted to take a very active role in innovating medical education as part of their Change MedEd initiative. Mm -hmm. So about 120 med schools throughout the United States submitted proposals. Uh, We were one of them. And we were one of 11 initial schools that got a million-dollar grant from the AMA uh, to create an innovative program in which a group of our medical students would not only get their medical degree, but a Master of Science in Population Medicine as part of the new third science of medicine that's called Health System Science. And over the years, the AMA expanded the consortium, so it wound up going up to about 32 medical schools. And we all had very unique projects of how we're going to change medical education (coughs) and how we're going to move it forward. And we would meet at the AMA every year. And then some of the schools would host a meeting of all the schools coming together in their school and uh, to talk about innovation and sharing best practices. And, uh, you know, they were good meetings, but for me, they were uh, incredibly disappointing. And the reason they were disappointing was that while these, these initiatives were very important for changing medical education, they really were not changing anything. And my view was that things were not going to change until we made much higher level system changes in how we evaluate medical students and evaluate their competencies. And one of the major stumbling blocks in that regard was the fact that there was a score for USMLE Step 1. Mm-hmm. And that score was used as a screening tool uh, for residency programs where residents could apply, where students, excuse me, could apply and be interviewed. And that was became a very, very important factor in certain competitive residency programs deciding not only which students they would interview, but maybe how they might rank them and their likelihood of matching to that individual program. Mm-hmm. So... Um, As part of this AMA Consortium Medical Education, I offered to host the consortium meeting at Brown in April of 2018. And the theme of the meeting was medical education getting too right. And the way that we um, we organized this particular uh, symposium is that we took uh, three controversial areas of medical education and we uh, talked about them in a pro-con debate format. Uh, And I'm just going to, for the purposes of our conversation, your question, I'll just talk about USMLE step one. The other ones Mm -hmm. were just as important. 
But basically for USMLE step one, we took one of our large lecture halls. We put a podium on either side of the lecture hall. And we had one person uh, give the argument about why USMLE should go to pass fail. And the other give a con argument why the score should be continued. So they, they, um, they each made their case in about a 10 minute presentation. Uh, they then had five minutes for rebuttal. We allowed no questions from the audience. I would say there were about, you know, 130 people in the audience. And that afternoon, we broke up into groups, and we had in these facilitated groups, these small groups actually uh, went into more detail about these issues. And of course, one of these groups was whether USMLE Step 1 should be changed to pass-fail. So that group would come up with recommendations, and they presented them the next day to a reactor panel that had very prominent people from across the country. And those prominent people included the chief medical education officer of the AAMC, the um, uh, representative member of the Council of Deans, representatives from the GME and UME organizations, someone very high level of the, at the AMA, the chair of the LCME, uh, one of our residents, one of our medical students, but it also included the president of the National Board of Medical Examiners. And when a lot of the discussion, as you can imagine, there was a lot of back and forth, especially related to how USMLE exams should be scored. And to his credit, the president of the National Board of Medical Examiners at that meeting committed to getting his board together and raising the question of whether USMLE exams, the scoring should be changed to pass-fail. So after that meeting, there was silence uh, for a little while, but to his credit, a meeting was organized the following year in Philadelphia at the National Board of Medical Examiners with all the appropriate stakeholders, which included, again, people from the National Board of Medical Examiners, from the Federation of State Medical Boards, from the ECFMG, from the AMA and the AAMC. And it was a two-day conference in Philadelphia, and they invited 45 additional uh, leaders uh, from across the country that uh, I was one of them. And it also included medical students and residents. And we spent uh, probably about two days uh, talking about this in great detail and coming up with recommendations. And this meeting was called the Inf Invitational Conference on USMLE Scoring. And again, it happened in May of, uh, in March, excuse me, of 2019. So they came out with a white paper. And again, there was silence for a while. And then in um, about a year later, in uh, February of 2020, the, the National Board of Medical Examiners came out with the announcement that scoring for USMLE Step 1 was going to be changed to pass-fail no earlier than January of 2022. Hmm. And uh, I think we were all surprised okay. um, a little bit from the announcement, but... Uh, I was happy. I'll tell you why in a minute. But I thought that that was a great announcement. I think it removed an, a really important impediment to being innovative in medical education because as long as that exam was in place mm -hmm. and residency programs were going to use that as part of the screening process, it was really... Um, it was really not going to allow us to truly be innovative in medical education. 
And I think we really now have an opportunity to develop better processes for communicating the competency of our medical students to all residency training programs across all disciplines. So when you say that it it hampered your ability to be innovative, do you mean that you were basically teaching to this test? Well, I think that's one of it. I think, you know, students applying to these competitive residencies, mm-hmm. they were most concerned about what that score was going to be. And right. we had to take, you know, eight to nine weeks, like every medical school in the country, away mm-hmm. from their education just to give them time to prepare for this examination. Right. And really, when a better use of that time really would have been to prepare them how to be doctors, not to get a high score on one individual examination. Right. And not to get too far off topic, but is Brown's medical school pass fail? So we are only, well, if for the USMLE exam or for all exams? For, your, for the classes that the students are taking. Yeah, we are pass fail for uh, the first two years of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. third and fourth years, we do have honors grades, uh, mm-hmm. satisfactory, and no credit. So okay. we are pass fail for the first two years. Right. And uh, I mentioned that my most familiar, I mean, I took the test, but I think I've repressed it. It was awful. Um, step one I'm talking about. So, but I do know that when you're a residency program, say you're a competitive residency specialty, I won't name one, everyone, you know, there are several and you have five spots and you have, I'm just making this number up, 5,000 applications, right? How do you envision them calling that that group down, you're saying that you are going to have innovative ways of displaying your students' qualifications to the schools. Is it letters of recommendation? Is Because if there's not a numerical score, in so much as we don't want to just chop off half the list and leave those people off, how else can it be done? And, and I think that's the process of what's going to be happening moving forward. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's kind of, because um, it's really an interesting question. You know, when you think about some of these competitive disciplines, you know, particularly in some of the surgical subspecialties, for example, mm-hmm. um, it's amazing to me that the exam has has had this such high level of importance when you think that there would be other qualities that would be so much more important for these individual residency programs to know about. Right. But, but, but it's hard to give those, those qualities a numerical value, isn't it? That's right. And I think that's yeah. very hard to do. Yeah. But we're going to have to figure, and we don't rank students as most medical schools. There's no ranking that comes out from okay. the med school with their medical student performance evaluation. But okay. now we as medical schools are going to have to come up with the way to do this. You uh-huh. might ask the question, like, why didn't we come up with that first and then go to pass fail? But it sounds like it was almost a surprise to you. Well, you it know. was a surprise. I was, I was, it was a happy surprise that they went right. in that direction. Uh-huh. But, but I think this is something that I, I would say I learned from our students. You mm-hmm. know, how, how do you make a, a, a huge change happen? Because this is the biggest change in medical education that I would say has happened in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. And basically, because the system has been disrupted by this change, this is going to put the pressure on medical schools to come up with the ways of communicating the competency of medical students to residency training programs. Mm-hmm. And I think it will enhance the way that there is a continuum between undergraduate and graduate medical education. And I think there'll be a better transition and a better way to onboard students going from medical school to residency. 
because I'm sure as, as you've even seen, there are silos between medical school and residency. Mm-hmm. And I think there's unbelievably no continuum along the education and training of our medical students into residencies. So I think this process will also help us ensure that this happens in a much more positive way. Right. And then leading into medical school, the MCAT still has a score, doesn't it? That's correct. Okay. So that'll be interesting to see if that changes because I I wanted to also talk with you about, it's, it's interesting that you call this a, like an abrupt change. I feel like the country is going through an abrupt change right now, not only with COVID, but also with these social issues and protest movements. And people are really focused on inclusion, diversity, equity. I imagine that some of the impulse to change the USMLE from a score to pass fail was also to broaden the net of people and what those people look like who are included in medicine, especially in certain subspecialties, which are not very diverse. Was that a part of the discussion? And it seems to me like Brown has a pretty good hold on on those issues. I, I heard a lot about it from the students that I taught. But what does all that look like to you right now? Yeah, I, I agree with what you have said. And it absolutely was a consideration part of the process. And those issues came up during the Invitational Conference on USMLE scoring that was held in Philadelphia. It came up in a lot of the subsequent communications that went to the National Board of Medical Examiners. Mm -hmm. There are biases in these examinations. Right. And it's important that um, that we have a very inclusive physician workforce that is available to care for the diverse patient populations that we see throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. And the more we can do to remove those biases in how our medical students are evaluated before they go into residency is really going to be much more important, not only care for individual patients, but to commu- to communities and society. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to see. It'll also be interesting to see if now that the medical schools have taken this shift, if the pre-medical education subset also decides to do something with the MCAT. Yeah. And, so, I, think, and I think too, I think yeah. even in our medical school, we do a, mm-hmm. a holistic review of applications. Right. You know, we don't right. have, you know, there are really not cutoff scores. And I think it's important that the entire application be reviewed so that we see that there may be students who maybe didn't score as well on a standardized test, mm-hmm. but will bring something very important to the practice of medicine. Right. And you may yeah. know that a number of students we take into the Warren Alpert Medical School never take the medical college admission test. And the program for liberal medical education, which is Brown's eight-year baccalaureate MD program, the MCAT mm-hmm. is not a requirement for them to come mm-hmm. to med school. Mm-hmm. And that's also true for a number of our early identification programs mm-hmm. and the post-baccalaureate linkage programs that we have with four colleges uh, in this country. That's really interesting because I know they're they're doing away with the GRE in some subsets of graduate medical education as well. So maybe we're as a society taking a hard look at standardized testing, which would be okay with me. Mm-hmm. I've taken enough of them in my life. You were elected as the faculty speaker for the class of 2019, during which you made remarks about your experience as a patient. I um, am going to link to that video in the show notes. It's very moving and I recommend that everyone watch it. I particularly thought your observations about your road to recovery from the ICU back to normal life were relevant to today as so many are having a similar experience now recovering though in a much different context. 
How have your experiences, quote, from the bed, that's how you call it, impacted your approach to medical education? And then as we, as the country sort of lives through COVID-19, have your thoughts about what you went through changed at all? Yeah, I I think it's a unique experience for a physician to be a patient, Mm -hmm. particularly uh, with a life-threatening disease. Yeah. And, um, and I think it really always puts a lot of things into perspective. I, I mean, I've always felt that uh, the patients that I've cared for throughout my career have had a great impact on how I've practiced medicine. I really think of my patients as really being, you know, my heroes in terms of how they've influenced me. And um, I, you know, I would have to agree. I mean, I think it's, you know, the recovery was long and hard, maybe again, something that uh, I, uh, I was not really as aware of until I went through it on a personal level. And I think it really does help me understand, um, probably even to a larger extent, what a number of the patients are, are going through. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I see people when they talk about COVID just as saying like, oh, this many people um, died from the disease, but this many people didn't. And then I wonder about those people who come out of the ICU. There's all kinds of <clears throat> healing that has to happen. And uh, I think right now we're just in the acute phase where we're all just trying to get through this, but it'll be really interesting to see long-term what the effects of all that are. So, um, yeah. As I mentioned have, in, my, yeah. in my lecture, I mean, I, yeah. you know, I'm fortunate that I have this huge support group Right. Uh, And, you know, many patients don't have something like that or many, many other people don't. And I think, you know, it was hard enough for me to go through. I can imagine what it may have been if uh, I didn't have some of those supports in place or I was not in a position where I um, uh, I had the kind of flexibility in in what I did for my job. Not everyone right. can do that. I mean, I'll, I'll relate to you something totally different because I talk about when I was also a cancer patient many years mm-hmm. earlier, I was getting chemotherapy. And, you know, I was, again, I was chair of the department of medicine in my uh, hospital and, you know, needed some time off. But again, I had a flexible schedule. The, you know, the person in the, the chemotherapy chair next to me, you know, was a construction worker Mm-hmm. had metastatic colon cancer. And, uh, um, you know, when he had to start chemo and, uh, you know, he lost his job, mm-hmm. you know, he, uh, his family was not supportive to him. Right. And, uh, you know, for, and I'm, you know, someone at means of privilege where I was able to deal with this, it's so much harder for so many other people. Yeah. And the agonizing choices that people are making right now about going back to work, when they're worried about exposing people, but it's a job where you can't, you know, there is no time off. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting time going forward. Um, there was a, another, um, item in the media about Brown's medical school recently where a certain cohort of medical students chose to graduate early and then go work in the hospitals. This was around the middle of April. Um, can you talk about the feedback you've heard from the students that I assume have finished that now and sort of moved on to their residency programs? Right. I think the feedback I would say was very positive. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, when we, obviously when COVID-19 happened uh, and really there were a lot of cases in New York City, I think you're probably aware that a number of medical schools there, uh, maybe most notably NYU, allowed their Mm -hmm. students to graduate early to start working there. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And we had some inquiries from our students about doing it. And and we talked to our health systems to see whether they would have an interest if some of our students graduated early. And um, uh, we, we took actually a little uh, a different approach in that we worked with the leadership at our health systems and the Board of Licensure uh, at Rhode Island to that for students who had an interest in graduating early, they would have an opportunity to uh, work as physicians in our health system, not as residents, but mm-hmm. as licensed physicians under appropriate supervision to begin caring for uh, for patients. And it was uh, the initial thought that it was going to be predominantly COVID patients. Because this, this was the time when our health systems were looking at setting up field hospitals given concerns about uh, the high numbers of patients they were likely going to see. Uh, Obviously, the numbers wound up decreasing, but uh, a number of our students um, did graduate early. Uh, Mm -hmm. Probably about 30 of them wound up working at Lifespan. And Mm -hmm. I would say the feedback from the health system as well as from our students were very positive. They were um, very excited to have the opportunity to graduate early and contribute to the care of patients. Mm -hmm. And I think it made them feel that they were able to have a very positive impact on this pandemic. And um, maybe aware that a number of our students were interviewed by one of the uh, TV stations. I don't remember whether it was 10 or 12 about Mm -hmm. why they wanted to graduate early and what that impact has been. And so that was one way that our, our students could get involved. But you also may be aware that many of our students volunteered for a myriad and got involved in a large number of volunteer activities at the Department of Health, within our health systems and physician practices. And so many of them really stepped up to provide important resources to help mm-hmm. people in the communities. Yeah. And I know um, I'm on a listserv where several of them were offering to provide free child care for frontline workers, which is amazing <laughs> to yeah. go from being a medical student to um, a nanny. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure which is harder. Um, so um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to me. I know your schedule is probably full on a, a standard day, um, but I'm, I really appreciate it and getting to talk to you about not only medical education, but also a little bit about infectious disease. Um, is there anything else that I have not asked that you would like to mention? No, I actually think I wasn't sure what to expect, but this was mm. uh, a lot of fun. It was really, uh, we just had a conversation. I thought it was very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not as intimidating as maybe I look on paper. (laughs) Anyway, I really appreciate you coming on and um, I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too, Natalie. Thank you. Thanks. Today is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and former student, Lee Kinney. Lee completed her undergraduate education at Stanford and a post-bac at Bryn Mawr. She is a second year or I guess almost second year medical student at the Alpert Medical School at Brown University a member of the class of 2023, which just sounds weird coming out of my mouth. Though Lee is here as a part of a show about medical education and what it looks like today and how things are changing and adapting in this new era. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Doing very well. Well, good. I'm glad. So could you tell us about yourself? I gave a very skeleton recitation at the beginning, but can you tell us about yourself and how you came to be a student at Brown? Absolutely. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, 
where my childhood and my young adulthood were, I would say, very defined by the arts, by things like painting and dancing and writing. I was really fortunate to grow up where I did and to be afforded the opportunities I got as a young person. Um, but I'd say the hardships that I did face as a kid were mostly related to the health of my loved ones. Hmm. I witnessed both of my parents as they struggled through cancer. My dad had colon cancer, my mom had breast cancer, and my best friend in the world had cystic fibrosis and was just always in and out of hospitals and doing treatments. So because of that, uh, medicine was always very much on my radar, but my parents were both entrepreneurs, frighteningly bold entrepreneurs. Their favorite saying is leap and the net will appear. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I didn't know I, that. Yeah. So, but as you said, you grew up is in the San Francisco area. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was this before it was Silicon Valley? Like before that all happened or was it at the same about time? Sort of same that, time. I was going to say, because that, that place seems to attract people like that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's very interesting. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They were very much in that wave. Uh-huh. And I grew up around that. And of course, then I did my college education at Stanford, which is also very entrepreneurially minded. So um, even though I was always interested in pursuing a career in health, I uh, I always felt that pressure to avoid this seemingly straight and clear cut path of medicine. Yeah. Go in favor of bushwhacking and finding my own way. So I right. studied health technology design in college. I worked at a virtual healthcare startup um, that really sought to increase the accessibility of healthcare, primary care in particular for rural and underserved populations. I wrote some community health intervention protocols and I, I love the creativity and innovation of that kind of work, but realized that it was just 10,000 feet off the ground. It was way too far removed from people and their stories for what was really worth it to me. Mm-hmm. So after college, I taught biology for a year and I felt infinitely more fulfilled by that people-centric work, but I also really missed the impact of the health and wellness sector. So then I spent a year working in an embryonic stem cell lab, capturing the impact that I wanted, but again, missing the humanism element of my job. And it was at that point that I decided to reroute towards medical school. So I did my post back at Bryn Mawr College and I applied to Brown during that program because Brown projected so many of the innovative, alternative, health equity promoting, social justice oriented values that I was looking for. And I feel so blessed now to be studying at Brown. That's amazing. So you had some time between graduating undergrad and going to medical school, which I did not. I just went straight through. For some reason, I felt enormous pressure. I was—I thought I was in a hurry. And looking back, I have no idea why. But <laughs> you seem like you had more life experiences. Was medical school what you expected it to be? And if not, or what things surprised you and what things didn't surprise you? And which one of the things you did before medical school do you think prepared you the best for what medical school has turned out to be like? Hmm. I definitely thought I would be prepared for medical school, especially mm-hmm. coming right off this post back in which I took all my pre-med classes in the span of a year. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the most surprising things about medical school to me was that the workload really caught me off guard. Mm-hmm. I think it, um, it took me the better part of a year to figure out how to not 
have my life completely dominated by school, how to start Mm -hmm. adding even just one or two hobbies or passion projects back into my schedule. Or sleep. Or sleep, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Exercise. (laughs) Yeah, exercise, sleep, eating healthy, like the things that you kind of take for granted. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. So that I think was a negative surprise, but Mm -hmm. a real positive surprise was – Maybe this is specific to Brown. Maybe this is true for all medical schools, but it was amazing how ready and willing all of my Brown professors and really all the local doctors in the Providence area were to have student shadows, mentees, what have you. Mm -hmm. And not only were those people available, but they were casual, unintimidating, incredibly humble Natalie, you are definitely one of those to me. Oh no, that's, <laughs> that's intimidating. Oh well, I loved I loved having you all in the lab. I just think it's so important to. I mean, as a pathologist, you know, mostly I I teach in one on one settings, and it's so nice to be in a classroom. I kind of think if I hadn't done this, I probably would have been a high school science teacher. So it's kind of like what you said you when you were teaching biology. It's so fulfilling, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's nice that you had a positive surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And so which one of the things, because I I find this interesting when I was looking at your CV, I was thinking, you know, and I've heard people maybe a generation above mine saying that if they applied for medical school today, they don't think they would get in. And I was looking at your CV Hmm. and I was thinking, my goodness, like she did so many various, very like, but I guess I didn't realize that you're from a startup family and that kind of makes more sense now Hmm. because you seem so innovative and like doing all these interesting things. Do you think there was one thing you did that prepared you more than other things that you did for medical school? Maybe that post, the post back that you did? I think that on one hand, the combination of all the things over time, honestly, especially even the things that I did outside of the medicine bubble um, Mm -hmm. really helped me get to know myself, gave me a better picture, a clearer picture of the kind of impact that mattered to me and just gave me those life skills and coping strategies that I could put in my toolkit. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I I also reflect on like, there's one experience that I had Um, which was just a a fork in the road Um, when I was applying to research jobs after I'd finished my teaching year and um, was ready to like dive a little more headfirst into the science world. And I was, um, I was presented with an option of joining one of two teams. One was a larger team and it was just doing some incredibly cutting edge research sure to publish in nature that year, but it was this really high pressure team, all eyes on publication, very little momentum behind the team building or teaching. Uh, And the second option was joining this one woman team with a really concise project, not a simple project, but much less delicate than the other one. And Mm -hmm. this other woman that I'd be working with was someone who really valued teaching and personal growth. And she was just amazing and patient. And I, I had that, this experience of asking a college professor of mine, his advice, and he suggested I go with the great mentor. And I think that was a really defining time for me because uh, so often I think on this path in medicine, we reach for publication. We reach for these like sort of externally defined successes and yeah. it felt really important to me to recognize that 
that's not what I was in it for. I was in it for the experience, for the mentorship, for the learning, for the growth. Um, and I think Brown has really helped me in, on that road as well. Yeah, that's really important. I think the more people I talk to, the more people, the more that I realize that the successful people I find can always point to someone along the way who helped them like that, someone who really mm-hmm. pointed them in the right direction. And it's it's a form of modeling good behavior, which is what I'm always trying to tell my little kids, <laughs> you know, like you have to see someone doing what you want to do well before you can sort of imagine yourself doing that. So um, yeah, that's, that's a really important, I like that fork in the road. That's interesting. Did that other group get the paper paper in nature they did yeah Um, well okay well you sound like you did their thing to yourself I I applaud your decision um so um I was one of your instructors for just a tiny slice of your medical school experience um it was my see so I started at Brown in November the year before I taught you and so it was my first time teaching even though I'd been at Brown for almost a year and I was I was pretty nervous to meet you all I mean I feel like on paper I teach in an Ivy League institution and then you like meet me and you're like okay you know <laughs> like it's like it, it's just a little bit it just on paper it looks a little different than it is in real life I'm just a person so um, you didn't come across nervous at all oh well that's good because I was sweating <laughs> I remember that day I just remember being like is it hot in here and if you're asking yourself that and everyone else is fine it's never hot in here it's always you um that's what I've learned the hard way like when I passed out in medical school but we can talk about that later um so and I don't have um like hard numbers on this but I think that um our class in terms of your entire curriculum in 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 the sense that it was a classroom and that you were required to attend and that there were probably what like 15 of you and me mm-hmm. um and then there were just a bunch of these sort of iterations all down the hall it's kind of an anomaly um given that it was in person and that it required attendance what percentage of your classes take place in a mandatory format in person because i can tell you you know in the um 15-ish years ago when I was in medical school, it was required every day. All the classes were in a lecture hall and you had to sit there from like eight until mm-hmm. four and they took attendance. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like that's what they're doing anymore. So do most of your classmates attend classes that are optional or um, if there are supplementary materials or people just, I, I heard you all talking about how you listen to a lot of your lectures <laughs> online. And mm-hmm. then if if you go to the class in person, do you listen to it again? Like, do you really have that much time in medical school to listen to lectures more than one time? <laughs> because it um, seems like to me in medical school that, like you said, the the thing that was surprising to me was the volume of material. So I just wonder how, yeah. how that works. Walk me through it. volume for sure. <laughs> so at Brown, I'd say about a third of our learning is in person. Okay. Um, our in-person time is our small groups, like the one that I had with you. So sometimes that's lab-based, sometimes that's discussion-based. We have our anatomy labs that are in person. We have our doctoring classes. Doctoring is um, a supplement to our our preclinical material where we get to learn about how to deliver a medical interview, how to perform physical exams. Uh, We have some more clinic-based discussions in that class. So all that learning is very much in person, often very hands-on and conversational, and we take advantage of being in person for those things. Uh, But then the rest of it is lecture, and lecture is not required. These are, you know, large group lectures. Every single one of them is recorded, Mm -hmm. recorded well for us. Is it recorded um, with the 
picture of the person or is it just yep. the PowerPoints and you can hear them talking? Okay. So their they face nice is thing. in it. Yeah, they okay. do. They do both. So uh -huh. you can see the sort of live projection of the screens, but then in the corner, you also see the lecturer um, uh -huh. giving the presentation. So it's still worth it to gesticulate. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'd say like 20% of our class attends those non-mandatory lectures. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah. you can listen to them while you're like on a jog or something yeah. or so you don't Most have to people just... just listen to them once, either in person or either as a podcast or as a uh -huh. video. Uh, some people can really learn just by hearing. I can't really do that. I, I don't yeah. often go to lecture myself, but uh -huh. do love watching lectures in a coffee shop or at home. You can pause the lecture. You can speed up the lecture. So mm -hmm. you can tailor it to your learning style. Um, and mm -hmm. they Med school really feels like it's all about the repetition, not necessarily the repetition of the exact same lecture, but um, the repetition of digesting lecture once and then using one of the overwhelming number of resources that are offered to med students to get multiple passes at the material. Mm -hmm. um, so I often use lecture as my first pass, just watching it on my own. And then I use resources like boards and beyond or first aid, these resources that are geared at um, studying for step one or mm -hmm. using past students' notes that are posted on our school's notes collective uh, and use those as sort of second and third passes of the material. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think when I first talked to you all that first day or someone asked me to do it, so maybe it wasn't the first day, but someone asked me how I studied in med school and I showed you all that I <laughs> I started off like you, you know, With your binders and notebook. My bind. Yeah, <laughs> notebook. And then I would distill the information. Like I would keep narrowing it down to like mm -hmm. the things that I either I couldn't remember or just like key topics or, mm -hmm. you know, I know a lot of people like flashcards, but I, for some reason, I think I used to use those to study when I was a Spanish, I was a Spanish major. So I, I just reminded me of vocabulary. So I was kind of over it, but I did like a lot of whiteboard stuff and it ended up being like these notebooks full of just like key and I, I hear uh, I interviewed another medical student from Brown, Chris Demas, and he said that he used to make these PowerPoints that he would <laughs> do like, you know, like pictures yeah. or something. So it seems like you all are still kind of doing the same thing. It's just um, it's nice that they give you more flexibility. For example, I know that not everyone learns best at eight o'clock in the morning. So, <laughs> um, you know, especially it's when true, your schedule yeah. is flexible, you know, that probably gives you more uh, freedom to, you know exercise and do whatever you need to do and also you know, make it work around your life. So that's nice. Yeah. Um, 20%. I, yeah. I didn't think, I, I don't know what I expected, but that's an interesting number. One in five. Um, they could probably hold the lectures in a relatively small room that <laughs> I imagine, but yeah. that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> so I do find that I do a lot now, especially since COVID hit, I've been almost entirely digital. I used to every once in a while print a paper off to read it and like highlight it or whatever. And back in the old days, my professors, I remember in residency had filing cabinets by journal and they would keep journal articles that they thought were interesting and they would summarize them on one page in the front and then file them, which I mean, no one would do mm. that anymore, you know? So I still print out papers. I find when I'm writing papers, I like to correct them on paper, but I'm guessing that I'm at least a decade, if not more older than you. So do you do all of your best learning on a screen? Is paper ever involved or what are your, I know we talked about study methods, but like physically, how do you study? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think I grew up in a generation where we were transitioning from paper to more digital learning. So mm-hmm. I have kind of a foot in both of those worlds. Mm. I don't think I would consider myself an on-screen learner, but mm-hmm. have learned to adapt to that. I got an iPad a couple of years ago, which has been mm-hmm. a wonderful way to take notes for, because it allows you to handwrite your notes, which mm-hmm. I think in a very kinesthetic way helps me learn um, mm-hmm. while also holding them digitally. So you can do things like carry all of your past notes around with you all the time. Mm-hmm. Um but then you I, I never think... have an excuse not to study, though. You could be studying <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you probably are I'm over that. I'm thinking more about yeah. like reflecting on past lectures and connecting material uh-huh. that we learned uh-huh. one day to stuff we learned long time ago, or even uh-huh. you know in in past schools that I've attended. Wow. Um, you know, iPads are great educational tools, but yes, I would say that my preferred study method is group studying far and away. I love the whiteboard method. I spent a while as a teacher. So, um, talking things out, honestly, I, I sort of follow a see one, do one, teach one philosophy for myself in a way. I -hmm. tend to watch a school lecture or maybe a supplemental lecture too, as my see one. And then I follow your philosophy of trying to rewrite or consolidate or connect themes in my notes, um, as my do one. And then I usually, with a study group, talk through all the concepts, teach my friends. I'm taught by my friends. That it does help one. to say it out loud, doesn't it? There's something about saying it out loud. That's true. Yeah. Not that I used to do that. We used to lock ourselves in little rooms. I mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not Those saying this in a pejorative way, but I, there are things about medical school that I do not miss. Although, <laughs> no, I spend, not because of COVID, I spend all day in my office by myself. So I'm not yeah. sure I really kind of come full circle. Um, It'll be yeah. interesting to see how that progresses with COVID. I know. It's what so those interesting. group study sessions will look like. I know. Well, I know at least for pathology, we've been teaching a lot virtually on the screen, like the resident mm-hmm. sits and looks at the screen and they can see my microscope on the screen. But Interesting. It's a little glitchy and it's not perfect. I feel like yeah. it, if this had happened 10 years from now and the cameras were just faster and, you know, everything yeah. was better and we could scan more slides and there was more memory or whatever. But mm-hmm. it is interesting. And and I don't know how we would have done this 20 years ago. You know, like what would people be doing? Right. Like faxing all this stuff back and forth? <laughs> it would be interesting. <laughs> anyway, I do actually know someone who started working from home in the 80s and he did fax everything, like just big huge stacks of things back and forth. So I guess it was done. It just probably wasn't terribly common. So I guess I feel lucky that COVID hit when it did then. I know that's, that's, I I think about that all the time. Like, what would we have done like 20 (laughs) or 30 years ago? I guess I don't know. Yeah. I guess Kinko's would have been like the place where you just went in at 3am when there was no one else there or something to copy. Buy your Kinko's stock while you can. Exactly. So I have a feeling that for the rest of your life, you'll be telling people you went to medical school during coronavirus or COVID-19, or I I still can't figure out how people are going to call this because everyone's saying COVID now, which is sort of correct, but not correct. And it's not really important, but it'll be interesting (laughs) to see what we're calling it. And exactly like, no one's going to say that. That's not, that's a mouthful. You know, it doesn't sound, it's not easy to roll off the tongue. So I know that Brown transitioned to digital learning in the spring in the interest of protecting you and also the people who teach you. Can you walk me through what it was like to realize that your schooling and life were going to change? Was there a particular day or was it sort of gradual? And then 
just tell me a little bit about how learning has been impacted this past spring semester, and then maybe um, kind of lead into what you think your second fall at Brown is going to look like in about a month um, <laughs> when you start as a second year medical student. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the moment I realized that our school was going to be virtual. Mm-hmm. I was traveling for my spring break at the time. I Ooh. was on Crete, actually, huh. and got this moment of service as I was driving up in the mountains in Crete and saw this email from school that said all our curriculum was going to be virtual. At first, there was an immense around, amount of excitement around it. I mm-hmm. found myself just daydreaming about where I could live while taking school. You know, I dreamed of taking classes in a Spanish speaking country so that I could improve my medical Spanish. I liked the idea of going back to California where I could be around my friends that I've been missing for so long and my family too. Um, But I think that very quickly shifted when I started reading the news and Mm -hmm. recognized the severity of the situation. And ultimately I think the change was pretty disappointing. Um, Hmm. Of course it was the right choice. Of course, I respect so much about what the school is doing to create a safe environment for everyone. But, you know, with, with this new form of our education, there have been a lot of opportunities that have been stripped away, a lot of things we just actually can't physically do. And that's Yeah, like in-person clerkships and things like that. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah we, there was no way we were going to be able to get into the clinics to practice our physical exam skills. And we adapted, of course. We took our doctoring classes onto Zoom and we, everyone did the absolute best that they could, but um, it was definitely different. Mm-hmm. And I also found that it was lonely. I missed my group learning. I missed my colleagues. That was such, my school colleagues, it was such a huge part of my medical school experience. And in kind of the COVID slump, I found that I lost a lot of my own motivation. All the extracurriculars were kind of um, forgotten in this new phase of everyone transitioning into virtual school. Mm -hmm. And so I I found that it was a lot less fulfilling in general. Mm -hmm. Um, But as we've pushed through, I think Uh, It's been a really important learning experience for everyone, recognizing what what pulls them out of the COVID slump. For me, I found so much value in um, creating other forms of impact, found myself uh, paying a lot less attention to my classes and a lot more attention to the state of the world and how I could contribute to COVID testing, to increasing access to healthcare. Uh, things that really did matter to me more. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's going to do me and everyone really well moving forward. Um, Yeah, finding something else to focus on or just pulling your focus away from what you're missing and trying. Yeah, I've been doing a reality check. Yeah. I think people will come back in the fall and of course it will still be different, but people I think will have generally um, uh a much more grounded sense of how we as med students can contribute to the world and yeah. improve this world, make it the world yeah. we want to live in. 
Oh, I have all the faith in the world that you all are going to change the world. But the fall classes will still be virtual. Is that what they've outlined for you? Because we got a, we got some, we've gotten some notices, but they seem like they're mostly for the undergraduate campus. I couldn't quite figure out: are they going to do all of some of your classes in person, or are they going to still be virtual? Yeah, we we got a notice the other day mm-hmm. sharing their plan. Of course, this is a flexible plan, mm-hmm. um, but the lectures I think will mostly be virtual like they will have basically yeah yeah basically um they're actually going to make it optional for some students to sign up to go to lecture so for those Hmm. students who um thought it was really important to attend lecture in person i think they'll be able to sign up and they'll have a small number of students you know socially distanced in the lecture hall i see Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a lot of small groups will still happen in person as best they can think the school is doing this sort of crazy scheduling system where everything is going to be spread out enough such that people can be in rooms that are large enough to be socially distanced Mm -hmm. um, and still have some semblance of in-person learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a lot of preclinical electives will have to be virtual. The first year anatomy lab is going to be pro-section based rather than dissection based. What is, um, what, how do you, it's not going to be like pre-dissected cadavers that they'll learn from what? rather than everyone dissecting their own cadavers. So you'll just come in and they'll be like, ta-da, heart, <laughs> ta-da, yeah. here's the reproductive yeah. system. Wow. I wonder <laughs> I whose job that is. Be kind of a great thing. I, I mean, that's, wow, that's something to wrap your head around. I didn't even think about that. It will be yeah. different. It will be different. How interesting. Okay. So that's interesting that they're still going to do some in-person classes. I wonder if they'll try and have things outside too. It's not like you guys have that much mm. room outside, but we could teach Histolab in a parking lot. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Everyone no. meet on the top floor of the parking garage. <laughs> I'll wheel two my trunk and power them by gas from my car. It'll be It'll be great. It'll be just like being in the lab. It'll be great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, a lot of scrappy solutions. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, a year from now, this is just like a bad memory. That's what I keep telling myself. But, you know, everybody's lives are upside down right now. And I'm not somebody who does great with change. So this has been hard for me, right? But I find that, Mm -hmm. like you've been basically saying, like shifting my focus to doing this podcast or um, coming up with new ways to do virtual learning. You said that you're you're coming out of your COVID slump. That's a good way. I haven't heard that term, but that's man. It's like it's like (laughs) having someone shake your head around and blow a whistle in your face and then telling you to get up and like act like a normal person. It just sometimes feels too weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Lee. I really appreciate it. I know that you're out there in LA working and uh, making the world a better place. But I think it's really important to hear as I do this on the show about medical education, what it's like for a student going through this, especially in the preclinical phase, because I think, you know, people might just assume that, oh, you were just in the classroom and you can do it all via Zoom. But it, it seems like medical school has become such a 360 degree experience. You know, it's not just learning and reading and, and going to lectures now. So yeah, I hope that, yeah, I hope that your fall semester is a little less bumpy than the sudden transition that hmm. in the spring. And hopefully eventually you can come and uh, actually sit across the scope from me one day. It'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for putting this podcast together. Yeah. No problem. Thing. Yeah. Okay. Take care. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Lee. Bye. Bye.